This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin. The message it had was be anti-establishment. Really, the first opposition to apartheid, they'll tell you that they were influenced by Rodriguez. But nobody knew anything about him. He was a mystery. Then we found out that he had committed suicide. And a lot of people have different versions of the story. He set himself alight on stage. He reached down and pulled up a gun. I thought it'd make a good story. Find out how Rodriguez died. That clip was from the Oscar-winning documentary Searching for Sugar Man, about the reemergence from obscurity of the singer-songwriter Sixto Rodriguez. The movie is credited with sparking new interest in his music, but a few years before the movie, Rodriguez's recordings had been reissued on the Seattle label Light in the Attic. Rodriguez is only one of the hundreds of artists whose music has been reissued on independent labels in recent years. So what's going on here? In many cases, the rise of reissues goes hand in hand with the increase in interest in the LP format, since a lot of these albums were originally released on vinyl and have been out of print for years. On another hand, this is exactly what independent labels are all about, bringing great music to people who might otherwise not have heard it. Today, we're going to talk to Billy Maupin of Yep Rock Records and Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic about why their labels have invested so much in reissues. And we'll talk to Jack and Audie from the seminal pub rock band Eggs Over Easy about their upcoming reissue box set. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. My guest today is Billy Maupin, the general manager of Yep Rock Records. Billy, welcome to the future of what? Thanks, Portia. Glad to be here. So tell us, you guys have been getting pretty heavily into reissues in the last few years. And I am interested as a music fan, why did you guys decide to start doing reissues? Well, I think it has always been something that we have been interested in. We work with a lot of artists that have had a varied career you know, going back many decades sometimes. And they had a lot of work that wasn't available currently. And with the new rise and all the different formats, streaming, box sets, you know, there were a lot of opportunities for people to go back and kind of explore where maybe an artist started their career or an album that was not on the on the radar. So it's just been a fun process to kind of dream up these ideas and then see if we can make them happen. And how's it been working out for you guys? So far, so good. I mean, I think we, over the last couple of years, have had a couple of really cool projects that we've been able to do things like titles that have been out of print on vinyl, safer acts that we work with currently, like Fountains of Wayne, to go back and license that material and, you know, try to track down the artwork or the original artist. I mean, that first Fountains of Wayne record was only 20 years old, and you think they would still have the artwork, but you know, nobody could find it. So we had to go back and recreate it, but it kind of makes it fun because it's almost like a new project and you kind of develop it as you go along. But fans really be excited about it. And I think 
appreciate it, especially when they recognize the amount of time that goes in from the artist side and the label side to sometimes get these projects off the ground. There is a real forensic element. We found that because we've done a few reissues, not as many as you guys, but you know, when you find some band and you have a copy of the album and you're like, well, how do we get the art for this? And then there's just no art files. Like they just don't exist. Right. So you're like, hmm, what do we do? Or they created it, let's say, and didn't have vinyl artwork. You know, maybe it was only on CD or right. or something like that. And, and you have to blow it up and the uh, scan of a CD sometimes doesn't work as well. So we've been working on a series of Nick Lowe reissues, basically his higher output of catalog in the 80s. And, you know, we've had our graphic designers had to spend a lot of time kind of photoshopping this brick wall that he was standing in front of <laughs> to try to make it look like the original as much as possible. And it's just, you know, I thought that there would be some sort of computer program that did all the work for him. And I kind of looked over his shoulder one day and he's literally just sitting there kind of coloring pixels to make this one section of a wall on a cover look exactly like like it should be, you wow. know, like it, like it was. Yeah. But, you know, Columbia didn't have the files and nobody, I guess, thought at that time, like, hey, we should really save this. It's probably, or maybe it even predated digital, you know, and was those old big sheets that you used to get from the printer. But yeah, but it, it's, it's been a fun process. Yeah. for Certainly for the artists, the, you know, the layout people and the designers, it's really fun. And it can be fun for us too, because we have to dig in and find, you know, old press stuff and old you know, stuff that people wrote up about the bands. It's, I, I mean, the projects themselves seem seem pretty interesting. Do you find that people are into buying it, though? Like when you do these big box set releases with multiple LPs or multiple CDs that they actually sell? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you have to be realistic. I mean, I, I guess that's the place we, we always start. We're hardcore music fans and, you know, typically on the physical side are selling to you know, retail accounts that are definitely into into the formats as well. And we usually start by just kind of talking to some of our key partners and kind of figure out, like, what do you think this would sell? What do you think the interest level would be before we kind of get started, I guess? And, you know, we want to make sure that, look, if we're going to put all this effort into it, there's going to be a market for it. But, you know, we've been surprised, I think, constantly by the demand still for physical product obviously it's not the level of Adele let's say but you know <laughs> there is a there is a market out there for people who want to touch and hold history and and hear it and i think they want to know that it's made with care so you know we definitely recognize look this is not going to be a million seller type of process but we certainly think we can make something cool and make something that you know the artist can be proud of and that you know fans can can care about it even if they're not you know the most, let's say, in the music business. but Well, that's the kind of awesome part about independent labels, in my mind, is that we have the ability to do that, to do sort of a loving project, something that you're doing because you care about the music and you want to put it out there, even if, let's say, it's going to sell 4,000 copies and you're, you're pretty sure you're going to sell about 4,000 copies. You know, no major label would ever put anything out if they thought it was only going to sell 4,000 copies. But for us, it's a labor of love. It's worth it. Yeah. And and just making sure, yeah, that you're going to get that return for the time and effort, you know, because sometimes it can be when you start talking about the packaging things or even just we, we were working on one recently for the Scoop the Eggs Over Easy and they, their original record came out in 1971 and 
there's just not a lot of photos of them. And there was one photographer who had lots of kind of original concert photos and studio portraits and stuff of them. And, you know, it took us six months plus to negotiate the deal just to get the high-res photos <laughs> before we could start the process of putting the package together. So, you know, you, you got to make sure financially it's going to make sense. So, but like I said, it's a, we, we, we love the process. So I, I think that's, and that at the end of the day, if you can have fun with, you know, something like this you're doing, that's all the better. So we're going to talk to Dick and Audie from Eggs Over Easy later in this program. So give us the storyline from your side. How did you guys get interested in putting out that reissue set? Yeah, so Jack and, and Audie from Eggs Over Easy are kind of a interesting story. They are an American band that found their way to the UK in the early 70s. And they sort of developed this circuit, what was called the pub circuit in the UK, uh, venues that they played shows at and they kind of established it as a circuit for a couple of years and through that other artists in the UK started getting involved and one of those artists was Brinsley Swartz which is Nick Lowe was in and then which led to Rockpile and then led to Elvis Costello stuff and you know all these other groups that sort of mine the same traffic so having worked with Nick over the years he would tell stories about that time period and about this band and his manager and others would would talk about this band that basically started the pub rock movement that came later and it was eggs over easy and so you know we started talking to quite a few people in the business and and not a lot of people knew who they were even uh i was talking to david frick one time and he had no idea you know who eggs over easy were and we thought well this is interesting this could be a really cool story to to tell and so we met those guys and you know just started talking to them and you know they had a career that didn't really for the time period didn't 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 go anywhere um they didn't sell a lot of records and were ultimately dropped by their label and but they had these two records plus one that was unreleased that you know was just some great music from the early 70s and great songwriting and we were able to kind of dig back into that and say well how would we um, present that and we spent some time researching you know someone to write extensive liner notes and you know tracking down the original photos and then really the fun part was kind of meeting them and then showing them kind of what we proposed to do and you could just tell how excited they were that like how almost 40 years later somebody's actually taking the time to do this right so I think the early 70s of the music business was very much a kind of a turn and burn industry so that's kind of how we got involved with them. And, you know, they're both still around and involved in various ways and music. And so it's just been a, it's been a cool process over the last two years. To develop it. Oh, cool. So you've also got another release coming up that you guys are doing for Record Store Day. It's Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. That's right. Yeah. The uh, Canadian instrumental combo. And I still, the, the title of this box set makes me laugh every time I have to say it out loud, but the, the box that's called, oh, I guess we were a surf band after all. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Didn't they have an EP or something that was called, we're not a surf band? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of the, the culmination that coming full circle of the uh, 
the history of the band. So sorry, I didn't know you that we had to bleep it. I, I wouldn't use that language. Oh no, it's it's okay. We we've discovered <laughs> we had we've had some people on this show before that were just like, excuse me, excuse me, bleep bleep. <laughs> so no no big deal. Two bleeps is no big deal. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about that because. I saw that actually they had a reissue, a box set reissue done in 2012. Was that just in one territory or did you guys take that over or how'd that work? No, we, we didn't do that and it, and it wasn't all of the material and it was done by another party. Uh-huh. So what makes this one different is it includes the three original LPs that they put out. I went back and got the original artwork from the band and rescanned everything and remastered all the songs. And then there's a fourth LP that will only be in the box set that has a mixture of unreleased tracks plus some other odds and ends that they did over the years. Like there's a track that they did on Fred Schneider's record. There's one of the tracks they did for a John Peel session. And that LP will only be available on Record Store Day as a part of this box set. Cool. So they're a more recent band. They're more like 80s, 90s. Era. I can't remember. I think it was late 80s, but they really kind of came to prominence in the 90s. They were one of their songs was the theme song for the HBO show Kids in the Hall. Oh, yeah. So that uh, generation of people that were into that sketch comedy show, they're forever linked with that opening of the five guys kind of walking down the street with their shadow. So that that was kind of uh, when they kind of came to their claim to fame as the mid-90s. And so what made you guys want to work with them? We've always been fans. I mean, we we thought they were great. And another act that we worked with, actually, the Sadies, one of the good brothers that's in there, Dallas, had been playing some shows as a, as a fill-in bass player. And he sent the music over and just said, hey, did you guys, you know, did you know them? They're going to play some shows and thinking about reissuing some music they had. And we were like, oh, we'd, we'd love to talk to them. And it just kind of blossomed from there and had a conversation and, you know, kind of got, let them know, you know, what fans we were and, you know, just had a lot of conversations about how we could approach this and, you know, what we might be able to do. So I think a lot of the projects that we work on, surprisingly, and I get asked this question a lot, is like, I think people imagine that in record labels now you're out at clubs for all hours of the night scouring, looking for the next project to do. And I kind of, this is a great example, like one of the artists we already worked with sort of told us about something that they thought was cool or, you know, let us know about something that was going on. And we kind of, we kind of took it from there. Yeah, I think people don't understand how often that happens because that really is a, a way that a lot of A&R gets done is, is yeah. other bands, your, your bands you already work with bring you stuff because that you trust them already. You know, you like their music. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so yeah and, you, and you trust that, that they, they understand what your aesthetic is and that what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, we've even had cases where people bring us stuff and they go, music's great, but you're not going to like working with them or not great for you and those types of things. But it's right. even better when the artist is like, hey, these guys are going to fit in the family, you know, very well. I think the shadowing men definitely do. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Do you have any sort of philosophical views about this reissue movement that's been happening? We're also going to talk on this program with Matt Sullivan from Light in the Attic because they've been super successful in recent years with a bunch of really interesting reissues. So do you think that there's something going on here? I mean, do you think there's like a desire? People are hearkening back to old times. I'm just throwing stuff out. Yeah, you know, I probably haven't thought of it in a philosophical way, but off the top of my head, I mean, my guess would be that people are interested in reissues right now specifically 
because it offers an opportunity for something that, you know, you can't quite get in a digital environment. You know, streaming is very much single tracks at a, at a time. You know, if you make it into the full record, you're probably lucky and downloads are, you know, somewhat limiting in that way because you can't kind of get into the, you know, fold out artwork or the, you know, booklet that has the gold embossing, that type of thing. And I think there's, you know, a movement a little bit for just kind of like the way the slow food movement happens, like a little slower approach to music and not, not by tempo, but I mean, just sort of your digestion of it, if you will, where you want to kind of take in the, the packaging and you want to read the notes and you want to hear the music and, and sort of not be rushed into your enjoyment of it. And so reissues sort of, you know, offer you a couple of things, right? Like you're not, you don't have any deadline you have to hit. I mean, in all of these cases we talked about, the artists aren't touring really. They're not, they don't have new records. There's, there's nothing that's going to keep you from that sort of longer development process that we talked about of, you know, getting the artwork and the liner notes and stuff. And then, you know, beyond that, having sort of something that's somewhat collectible. And then I think people have fetishized quite a bit vinyl in general. And um, I think that this, this kind of is taking that to another level. And when you're selling a 60 or 70 or $80 product, it definitely, uh, you know, you're serving a niche. So, so I think those, those have all kind of been contributing factors to the, to the rise of it maybe. And do you, have you seen from, your standpoint, you know, as general manager, have you seen that the niche is growing or is it pretty much staying the same, would you say, in the last 10 years? In terms of reissues? Yeah. I mean, in terms of sales of these sort of nicely curated, beautiful, slower process, handmade looking reissue stuff. I think I'd be hard pressed to say that it's in sales of individual ones have, have grown. I think there's probably been a growth in the number of packages that have this kind of approach. But I mean, you know, overall sales market being what it is, I mean, we're not all Adele. It's (laughs) going to be difficult to to show that kind of growth. And I mean, the thing that I look at is just, there's not as many outlets to sell and display that kind of place. I mean, there's, there's great indie stores for sure that are, that are still around and doing a, and doing a great job. But I, I think to really see the market grow, you'd have to have, some other, you know, physical retailers commit to displaying the product because you've got to be able to to see it and touch it, you know. And even Amazon, I think it's not as easy to, especially if it's music you never heard. Like, are you going to throw down seventy dollars to, right? You know, buy buy something you're you're not familiar with. So I think, right? So I think if if there was a maybe a more of a rise and a few more, you know, good retailers that curated it and spent the time and you had a clerk that kind of understood how to present it, you'd see those those numbers go up. So I'd, I'd say, no, I haven't really seen the, the sales of individual ones, but, but definitely have seen more titles. You know, there's definitely several labels that specialize in this. So That's a really interesting point about there not being as much retail space for it. And, and like you said about Amazon, you know, in the digital age, we spend all this time, like you were talking about earlier, recreating these packages, these making these photos beautiful. And then they end up as a, you know, one by one inch, <laughs> thing on Amazon, this little tiny, you can't even see anything. I, I think there's a financial component to it too. It's like the store can't afford to put 10 copies up on the shelf, nor can we necessarily afford to make a lot on a speculative basis. So you, you, you know, it, it, it's sort of a, 
self-limiter, if you will. Right. You, you, you've got to make what you can sell or you can get burned if the demand is not there. So Absolutely. I, I, I think that's why, you know, and the lack of space in the stores, a lot of the stores that are around have gone to a smaller footprint model and they're a little more curated and things like that. So if you're making a 10-pound box with a... <laughs> <laughs> you know, gold lid. The, the reality is there's only going to be one and it's going to be sitting right behind the counter. might be the most expensive thing in the store. Right. Good point. Well, Billy Maupin, General Manager of Yep Rock Records, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Awesome. Thank you, Portia. I really appreciate talking to you today and I uh, hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Say hi to everybody for me. was Having an Average Weekend by Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. My guests today are Jack O'Hara and Austin DeLone from the band Eggs Over Easy. Welcome to the future of what, you guys? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you, so we are speaking to you today because the label Yep Rock Records is going to do a reissue of several of your albums from the early 70s. Is that correct? That's right. Well, it stretches a span from 72 to 80. 72 to 80. And these records are unfortunately ones that a lot of people haven't heard but the ones who have heard them and the ones who know about you guys are massive fans. So you're one of those real original underground bands that, you know, have a true cult following. Yeah. And the people who know you really love you. So it's a real joy to talk to you guys. Yeah. Great. Lovely to talk to you too. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's go ahead and set the stage for people. The thing that sort of put you guys on the map, you went over to London in 1971 to record your first record, which you, you did record, but then like it often happens in the music business, circumstances happened, life happened, weird things happened, and that record did not get released. Is that the case? Yeah. That was a record we recorded with the great Jazz Chandler as our producer and at Olympic Studios in London. Fantastic studio. Very, very happening studio at the time. So that we were, it was, that was great. So like many things that happened in the world of rock, the fact that that didn't get released actually led to the thing that did sort of put you guys on the map, which was apparently you got yourselves a gig at a a London jazz club. It was a London jazz pub, I would call it. (laughs) A London jazz pub. It was a it was a pub where they had jazz uh, six nights a week of a lot of famous British jazz players and also a lot of the great American cats that would come over and do a concert and they would frequently go up and and jam at the Tally Ho up in Kennish Town, which is the name of the pub, the Tally Ho. But to put it in context, this is kind of beyond that era, you know. Basically, they weren't. Is that am I right, Audie? They weren't having the jazz so much anymore, right? It was no, of... they had six nights a week of jazz when we when we first went there. There was one night that wasn't. Music. I had no idea. 
That's right. We <laughs> saw Phil Woods or somebody there, right? That's there was right. one night that wasn't music. That was uh, that was a Monday night. So we took over. We said, "Hey, we'll play for some beer, and if you like us, you can, we'll play again, and you can give us some money." And then by the end of the year, it was uh, the roles had reversed. There was, uh, I think, one night of jazz left, and the rest was all some good pub rock and music. And starring you guys, right? Yeah. Awesome. We ended up with four sessions a week. Wow. So that was the origin of of pub rock. That's what they tell us. That's we what have they to say. <laughs> and that's a huge. I mean, that's a huge musical shift from jazz. I mean, that's that's pretty much revolutionary in a lot of ways. It was, well, you know, socially, people needed a place, you know, and and it just wasn't accessible to them because the pubs were just very conservative and just used traditional forms of music up to that point. Jazz and even way more traditional music than jazz. Wouldn't you say, Audie? Like. Yeah. Real kind of old-fashioned pop. Along and jazz, we just have to jazz. get that, open that crack, you know, with, with our kind of music. And then suddenly it was accessible to to more people than it had been before. So what we were doing, it's, more you know, what styles. we were doing was more just more current for the, the youngsters, for the younger folks, you know, the 20s, as opposed to the real jazz fans who were, I mean, not that there weren't plenty of jazz fans that were tw- in their 20s, but, you know, it was just a change. Music was shifting. Times were shifting. <laughs> you guys were sort of at the forefront of that because then the people who came to see you play at the pub turned out to make their own music. You know, you really influenced people like Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and, you know, other guys who went on to, you know, have the late 70s and early 80s be really about that sort of pub rock influenced singer songwriter. Absolutely. Pub rock influenced. And then, and then the whole movement, the sort of pub movement and playing in pubs and and being kind of looser and wilder, uh, ultimately, that into some of the bands that became the early punk bands, like The Class. I, th- I can't remember what their original name was, but I think they started as more or less in the pub scene, and then they ended up breaking into the whole punk rock scene. I'll tell you what else that was going on. When we were there, the people that first came to hear us were squatters. You know, there was there was a certain social situation in London where there was a lot of abandoned housing, and there were, you know... People were living in squats, you know, and and the whole climate. Young people, the economy was down. People didn't didn't have a have jobs, and so we didn't know anything about this at the time. This is just our little core group that maybe the first people that came to hear us in the first few weeks, and eventually, you know, people were coming from all over London, and, and the whole demographic of the crowd was was really broad. But I only say that in in response to what Audie was talking about, uh, The Clash, because Joe Strummer had a band called the 101ers, I think was the name of it, but they were in a squat. That was the address of their squat. There was just a whole underclass of, of young people that were uh, that kind of turned into punk in the end. That's, that's how it kind of rolled over from pub rock into punk because the pubs became available to people for, for uh, certain styles of music, certain kids to be able to express themselves and, and, and the pubs weren't available before that. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so interested. Okay. You know, it's yeah. it's fascinating. It's so different, the history in, you know, it's so interesting for you guys to be an American band going to England and then sort of being influential in that situation because in our yeah. situation in America, it was very different, of course, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it was more like soft rock, right? 71. Yeah, and... Was hard rock happening yet? Yeah, I guess Led Zeppelin was happening, yeah. No, well, the glam rock was happening in England. David Zeppelin and Boy was coming on and all that kind of stuff. So we were we were sort of in opposition to some of that stuff. Yeah. That's true. Another thing we were doing is we were playing, we had an acoustic piano and really small amps. 
you know? Uh-huh. The whole world was just getting bigger and louder, Hendrix, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And so we just on the other end of the scale, you know? Right. It was really, we were under the radar quite a bit when we were there as far as the big picture, as far as the music business per se. Yeah. But we were having an impact nonetheless, I guess. We were finding plus out. Time, plus the whole time we were playing at the Tally Hoes, Specifically, our drummer was actually from England, was a guy named John Steele, who was the drummer from the Animals. It was a great, just really simple, lovely, uh, slightly jazzy, Charlie Watts kind of style drummer. Still alive today, still playing. He's still great. Cool. John Steele, yeah, very cool. You left London, you came back to America, and you did make a record for A&M Records. Mm -hmm. And that came out in 72, and you did some touring. And how long did the band actually go on after that? I think we played our last ten show. Ten years maybe. is the real number, isn't it? Yeah, ten years. We were about it. We lasted for ten years. Yeah, it's a good run. We made we made that album with with the great Link Ray, the great guitar hero Link Ray was the producer in Tucson, Arizona, and then we came out to California and uh, settled in uh, Mill Valley and played around here for a long time, as well as doing some national touring behind that first album for, for the A and M album. And since the band ended, I understand, Jack, you're a sound engineer? Yeah, I do primarily live work, but also I record and produce. But yeah, I've been making my living, mixing live shows in clubs and some big concert halls. I've been hearing like the greatest music in the world all this time. Around New York City? Yeah, in New York City. Generally, sometimes I travel with people, but generally right here. I'm originally from New York, so that's, that's my old stomping ground. And Audie, you actually are still a musician? I'm still a musician, and I've, uh, that's what I, I did uh, and have been doing on and off for, for years and years and got to play with some uh, really well-known people as well as some people that you've never heard of. And that's <laughs> all been great. <laughs> so are you guys going to get back together when this reissue comes out? Are you going to play some shows live? We're definitely going to do some shows live. We'll probably, we'll probably start with a duo thing, which has the great uh, Jack and I have been playing together for a long, long time, so we have a great musical. Rapport, I think is the word. Uh, polar opposites. We can't stand Something each other. Something happens. No, that's so wrong. No, that's so wrong. We've got, we've Something got happens a... when we play together. Yeah. Something very good. You know. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Now, how did you guys get hooked up with Yep Rock Records? Jack, you tell the story about Matt. I guess that would be the real connection to Yep Rock. We had a re-release of the A and M record about ten years ago, or maybe eight years ago, on Hux. It's an English label, and in the liner notes, it mentioned that I was playing at B.B. King's in New York, which I, I was doing quite a bit of then, a couple times a month or whatever, with my band. So one night, a couple of guys came <laughs> into the gig like a cold January night with nobody there and asked me if I was Jack O'Hara. And I said, yeah. And they, and they had the they had the vinyl. They had the Eggs Over Easy vinyl. And I'm like, where did you ever hear about that? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and they just, you know, they were like just a couple of good guys around 30 years old. And uh, one of them is a really good producer. He had a band called Papas Fritas, Tony Goddess. Oh, sure. Up in the Boston area. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he's a producer and a member of that band. And his friend is Matt Hanks, who's a publicist and uh, a really good publicist in New York. And they were just real fans. They loved the music. And I've been friends with them ever since. And Matt Hanks just was very motivated and really thought, you know, someone should uh, re-release our record at the very least. And yeah, tell the story. It's, it's kind of about the story as much as the, as the record. And uh, he eventually hooked us up with uh, Yep Rock. Or, you know, he, he, he turned the turn them on to us, I guess, he, he would say. Right. Kind of got the two parties involved. Does that sound accurate, Audie? 
Yeah, that sounds right. As far as I know, he was good friends with uh, the guys at Yep Rocket, including especially Glenn Dicker, the president. And he said, hey, these guys are great. You should re-release and tell the story, as they keep saying. Got to tell the story. <laughs> yeah. So they're going to tell the story. Yeah, it's a great story. <laughs> yeah. The reason I'm friends with them is because they distribute my records. I run a record oh. label called Kill Rockstars, and they... Uh, Oh, you're Kill Rockstars. Yeah. Oh, that's your label. Yeah, that's, yeah, label. that's cool. It's cool. Gotta check out your label. <laughs> They're our distributor, so we're buds with them. They're great people. I see. Red Eye, right? Red Eye, yeah, exactly. They've just been doing so much interesting stuff lately on Yep Rock that I wanted to, to talk to them about this reissue thing. We've done a few reissues ourselves, but we haven't gone in like this with sort of a big box set with a big three LPs, two CDs. Right. That's pretty yeah. impressive. You know, that's that's a yeah. big undertaking. That's so. big. I'm yeah. shocked at how big this is. I mean, it's, a, it's a really, uh, I mean, it's incredible that they're doing this. I, we want to make the most of it, of course. Of course. Well, with that, Jack O'Hara, Austin DeLone from Eggs Over Easy. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being on The Future of What? Lovely to talk to you, too, Thank Portia. you, Portia. That was Night Flight by Eggs Over Easy. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this. And it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking reissues today. I'm talking to Matt Sullivan, the owner of Light in the Attic Records. Matt, welcome to The Future of What? Hi there. Thanks for having me on. So happy that you're here. So today we're talking about reissues. And you guys are like one of the flagship labels you know, in, in particular, what I think is really cool is that independent labels have made such a strong showing in the last 15 years or so with reissues. It seems to be sort of our forte, like what we're good at. Mm -hmm. And you guys are just mm -hmm. like the flagship label for that. You have done so well. And I wanted you to tell everybody about how you started out. It was like 2001, right? Yeah, Light in the Attic launched in 01, and then our first release came out in 2002. And I started the label, and then my old friend and now business partner, Josh Wright, came on board soon after. And before that, we worked at a high school radio station called KASB in Bellevue, Washington. So that was kind of our start in the music business or whatever it's called now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was 93 and 94. And we, it was a little 10-watt station on the FM dial, but you couldn't 
hear it at my house, which is two miles away, but you could hear it in downtown <laughs> Bellevue. Uh, and it was an amazing program. The kids came from all over King County, Seattle region and, and surrounding areas to take this class where you could, they taught you how to work the studio board and how to, you know, you got your own show at night and you could play whatever you wanted to, but enough swear words. And senior high school came and they asked me to be the music director because they said that I was the only student who wouldn't steal all the promo CDs. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got involved with all this stuff. And then from that point, I was like, wow, I love the idea of a label and the curatorial aspects of it, but I, I had no, I just knew I just was, could not play music to save my life. Um, so I went on the label side and then, you know, thought, well, okay, I'm going to do this. So and did the college radio thing and then lots, lots of internships at places like Sub Pop in the mid-90s and Loose Groove in the mid-90s. And then Boozy 10 in the Sub Pop suggested following the semester I was going to go study abroad in Spain and do a national radio internship in Spain. And she suggested, I called this label called Munster Records and she pulled out a seven-inch single, The Fast Facts, on Munster Munster was a reissue label that's still around. It's been around since like the mid eighties. It's in Madrid and it's its primary focus is reissues. And so I called up Munster and said, I'd like to work in the music business. Not only I'd like to work at your place and be an intern. They said, What's an intern? I said, Well, it's we work for free and I said, Okay, well you're hired. And uh <laughs> that was ninety seven or something and then did that and that was kind of where I got involved with reissues of, you know, at that point started thinking of a label as always contemporary music and then Munster's focus was, you know, reissues of like Spaceman Three and the Stooges and the New York Dolls and a lot of music that I being a big Nirvana fan might hear Cobain talk about but didn't really some of it I hadn't really been engulfed with. They were the ones who introduced me to those things and the monks and small faces and all these just like classic amazing classic bands that, you know, you kind of it was the early times of the internet, but you couldn't really figure out those bands unless you went to a record store or read or did your research or had an older brother or somebody who turned you on to them. So they were really my, I guess, kind of older brother and opened my eyes up to that world. And then finally, a few years later, started the label and, you know, the focus was all that. It was primarily reissues, but also some contemporary releases at the same time. And, you know, since then we put out about like about 200 releases so far, a lot of vinyl, a lot of still do CDs and, digital as well, Spotify and iTunes and all that stuff. So, you know, our focus is, you know, really a lot of this is on packaging and presentation and doing the audio restoration elements and really kind of telling the history behind these recordings and artists as best we can to document these recordings that haven't really got their due. So what is that what you would say is sort of the, the true impetus for putting out reissues is to bring great music to light that people might not know about because they kind of missed it? Yeah, usually. I mean, it it definitely is kind of our, yeah, our, our core of why we do this. But, I mean, there are things we do sometimes that aren't, you know, they're not, not everything we do is in always the most private press, self-release, small run of something back in the day compared to others. And we've done things like, you know, Serge Gainsbourg or Lee Hazelwood or D'Angelo, maybe the artist, maybe the release wasn't on vinyl or maybe it had, like in Serge's case, his album, A History of Melody Nelson, you know, it had never been reissued pretty much in like kind of to an English speaking audience. So, it, you know, it never had the lyrics translated, at least, you know, in the packaging format of CD and vinyl. It had never, you know, had notes that were in English that kind of explained some of the history to an English speaking audience of these recordings. So for us, you know, that was something that here in the States that we wanted to, you know, bring justice to or however you want to say it. In the case of D'Angelo's record Voodoo, hadn't been back out on vinyl in 15 years and you know it's such a monumental record that it seemed kind of crazy that hadn't been on vinyl so we 
hired a really great writer, Jason King, who's the uh, works at the Clive Davis Music Department at NYU. He wrote these fantastic notes interviewing everybody who works on the record and you know documenting that record. So there, it's 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 always you know definitely doing giving hundred you know hundred ten percent to document something, but it might be something that's very well known or a little more well known, and then things that aren't more well known. But for, in our feeling, it's like why can't you know D'Angelo Lee Hazelwood and Donnie Joe Emerson, who were some farm kids from Eastern Washington in the, in the late seventies, be on the same record label. So, you know, good music is good music. That's a really great point because I think a lot of labels, independent labels, really sort of stick to a genre, and that has been something that my my label, Killer Rockstars, has had to struggle with because, for you know, we've been around twenty five years, and when we started, we did kind of have a genre, mm-hmm. but then we kind of went in all these crazy directions. Yeah. So now it's really hard. You know, I meet somebody and they're like, "Oh, what kind of music do you put out?" And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to answer that question." <laughs> I think the world, you know, the world is, is changing with the internet. People have so much more music at their fingertips that, you know, I think people's tastes are a bit more diverse than they ever have been in a good way. You know, I mean, some of my favorite labels of all time were, you know, labels like Kill Rockstars or Creation or, you know, these labels that, you're right, was I, I, back in the day it was very defined of like, we are a rock label or we are a shoegaze label or we are a hip-hop label. And now it's it's, it's not as much of that, but... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's changed. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that's a really great point. It's something that I think about a lot in the music landscape today. You know, the internet has done this thing where it's made it possible for people to listen to music from all eras, all at the same time, mm-hmm. which on one hand is really great, and on another hand is really terrifying and confusing because it's sort of like, it's just this giant wash of noise. Yeah, And I think that, independent labels have continued in importance because we still provide a filter to some extent. You know, we, we provide like, oh, well, if you like something and you, you know, it was put out on Light in the Attic, you might try something else that came out on Light in the Attic because you kind of trust their taste. You know, it provides this mm-hmm. curatorial experience, which I think you're right, has gotten a little bit away from genre so much, but it it's more about just like, how do you navigate the sea of of music that's out there. But I wonder how you feel. Do you think that one of the beauties of reissues is that it does provide some context for these artists that you may otherwise not really know what they're about or where they came from? Definitely. Definitely. I think that the context is so important when you're talking about music that's from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, at least with me. I mean, I, I, you know, I want to know as much as I can find that's been documented on these recordings and, you know, if they're, you know, old timey folk music or bluegrass or, you know, early hip hop or whatever it might be. You know, it's and and some of this information is really hard to, you know, if there wasn't an iPhone in the studio room, so a lot of this information is, is hard to come by, not to be documented. But the internet has is, is certainly changed all that. You know, as someone who's who's a you know a big music fan, that the internet is it's a blessing, but it's a curse because it is, as you were saying, um, it, it's so overwhelming. You know, like I always want to listen to new music, and at this day, I don't even know where to go. Like, right. I mean, there are all these <laughs> blogs or these blogs I go to, and you know, you only have so many hours in the day. And you know, it's me complaining about this. Who's someone like you who is around and working with music all day? Like the average person, like my brother, who has like a day job that has nothing to do with music, and he loves music. And he gets in the car and he drives home, and I probably. Drive from work to home is probably the only time he can literally listen to music before he gets home and he's with his kids and 
you know, that the whole thing is a, is a different world. So it's hard. It's, I feel like the internet, it's, it's a really important time for the curatorial part of it. And like, you know, I have a Spotify account. I don't even, sometimes I get on the car and I want to listen to something and I don't even can't figure it out because there's 2 billion songs to choose from. And I don't want 2 billion songs. Like I want, you know, like go back to Kirk Cobain. Like he was a guy who talked about like the raincoats and the shags and those mutantes and black flag and all these things. And like, you know, he was someone who you could, as a fan of him, someone like, wow, you know, I've never heard of the shags or I've never heard of the raincoats. And then you go pick up the record. Like, wow, this is great. This is amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I I miss. I mean, there are those things out there all the time. There are people just you know your friends and whoever else in a record store. But with the web, it's it's just overwhelming. Like I don't know how new bands do it now. You know, I don't I don't know how it's just become such a struggle in so many ways. Like making a living, but getting your music out there and to be heard and you know bless their souls. I mean, I, it's just it's a crazy time with the the world. It uh, is it's definitely a crazy time with it the is. music business, but. You know, I mean, it'll all, it'll all somehow figure itself out. You know, music's never going to go away. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I still get hundreds of demos. Yeah, oh yeah. All the time, all the time, yeah. All the time, and you know, we're still desperately trying to get people to write about, you know, what we're doing and trying to explain to them, like, hey, just because this was made in 1986 or 1966 doesn't mean it, doesn't isn't important today. You know, and it's it's just a... It's it's a struggle as you know these things are, but you know finding those just kind of lost gems and kind of bring them to light is you know what we you know makes us want to get up in the morning and and continue doing this. I mean yeah, I feel really blessed and really lucky to be doing this now for 13 years and you know knock on wood and it's a, it's a strange business, but it is is a blast. So talk to us about one of those hidden gems, the Rodriguez records. I I bring that up because yeah. those have been some of the highest profile because of the movie. Searching for Sugar Man, mm-hmm. it the the documentary rather that those records really got a lot of press and certainly got a lot of attention. Yeah. But tell us because you reissued those in two thousand eight before that movie came out, so you were sort of on that tip early. What did you guys feel about that artist? That first record, both of them especially, but you know, Cold Fact really is the one that just uh, his first album from sixty nine that just it just floored me. I heard it on a compilation that David Holmes put together as a soundtrack producer and soundtrack producer works with like Primal Scream and he did the Ocean's Eleven soundtracks and stuff and you know, the song Sugar Man was on it by Rodriguez and I was transfixed by it and then ended up playing the album Cold Fact and I don't know it's just I love Rodriguez's the songwriting his voice the lyricism the production elements and he has you know Dennis Coffey and all these guys who worked on all these you know legendary Motown records but it's this very kind of odd but timeless mix of folk music and psychedelic rock and, and soul that's just done so well. And for me, it's, you know, what he's singing about on that record, you know, 45 years ago, most of it's still totally relevant today. You know, there's a lot to say. Did you guys have a lot of trouble getting a hold of those records? Yeah, they were hard. I mean, they were, the records hadn't been reissued outside of South Africa and Australia. And so it was a real challenge. So about 03, 04, I mean, we ended up reaching out to, there's a website online uh, that was kind of a big Rodriguez fan site it's called sugarman.org. And it's, it's a big part of the film there in South Africa. And they put us, I asked, Hey, I'd like to find Rodriguez. And could you put me in touch with him? He's a Detroit artist. So they put me in touch with his family who are still in Detroit. 
and then I went out to Detroit to meet him in about oh, 04, 05, and had just a great time with him. Josh went as well with his partner, and had the day with him. He took us all around his like his local brewery, his local you know concert venue, and introducing us to all of his friends and his little coffee shop, and it was amazing. He sadly didn't own the rights, you know, so... Who did? The old label did, which is Sussex, which is Clarence Avant. So what we had to do is, you know, work with Clarence and figure out that, but with everything we do, we don't want to... If the artist isn't going to be involved and be excited about what's happening, then usually we don't want to do it. I mean, it's like, you know, we want to... Of course, yeah, yeah. You know, shine a light on these people and get them involved. So yeah. Rodriguez was like, I would love to see this happen. You know, it, you know, there's really nothing that's... No one had any interest in his music outside of, like I mentioned, South Africa, Australia, and a few places here and there in a very small cult audience. So it took about, I mean, God, I don't even know, two or three years of bugging Clarence Avant, the master rights holder. And that's a lot of, you know, what we spend our time on here is subjected to these, uh, you know, you know, Rodriguez had to deal with Clarence Avant and that's just how it was. But, you know, it's, you're kind of dealing with sometimes a lot of curmudgeon copyright holders, you know, I wouldn't say he's a curmudgeon copyright holder. He was, you know, once he came around and understood where we were coming from, he was supportive and wanted to work with us. But, you know, I mean, you know, he's, he's been successful. And so, you know, he's like looking at us, like, who are these little kids in Seattle? And <laughs> why did they want to reissue Rodriguez? You right. know, he's like, you know, things were absolutely insane. And then we, he came to Seattle for, for his wife's anniversary and wedding anniversary and we gave him, I gave him like a, a Betty Davis reissues, I think a, a press kit. And he was like, how the hell did you get all this press? And I was like, well, I'm not the only one working here. There's a, there's like a team of people and we're passionate and care about this. And he was like, you know, that kind of won him over. And then Mike Theodore is one of the original producers on the cold fact record with Dennis coffee. He was a big part of kind of explaining to Clarence, like, look, these these guys are going to do a good job. They care about Rodriguez. They're going to put time into this and archive it like no one has. That was like, oh, seven, oh, eight, and the records came out and did really well. And I remember Rodriguez saying, we brought him to New York for his first ever New York show with his, his daughter and I worked on bringing him out there. And he played the show at Joe's Pub and it was an amazing show. And I remember Rodriguez saying around the time, like, oh, there's a Swedish guy making a documentary on me. And my first feeling was like, how could anyone make a documentary on you? You don't want to go on camera. You don't really want to talk about the past or like you don't, you know, there's no archival elements to it, meaning video or anything. And I met Malik, the director, and just like, wow, this guy actually, maybe he can pull this off. It's really bright and, you know, cared a lot and, and you know, incredibly enthusiastic about it. And they had an amazing angle too, because the whole, the whole mythology that he was dead Inside the no, no question. I mean, the was story was like cool. larger than life, and yeah. such a ridiculous story. And yeah, and Mal, but I mean, you know, to to do it, I mean, how he had the story unfold in the film was very kind of like almost like almost like an Alfred Hitchcock film. It's almost like more of a narrative film than it is even like a documentary in some weird way. So you know, to see it kind of unfold is, I'm of course biased, but I I think it's a fantastic movie. And and you know, every six months he'd send us you know rough clips of it, like, oh, what do you think? And and then, uh, you know, finally, we all went to Sundance for the premiere, and it was just like, you know, bonkers, and kind of took off from there. But it's really been really fascinating just to see the here in Los Angeles last year, and Rodriguez play the Greek theater. It's just like, wow, how, you know, I remember we brought him to the Echo in Los Angeles, 300 people, and it was like a struggle to get 300 people there. It sold out, as I recall. But, you know, the movie kind of took it to a whole stratosphere, which the guy, you know, so well-deserved. I mean, he worked so hard for so many years. I mean, to have that type of success in your life and none before and you're at 70 years old is, you know, I, I don't know many stories of any like it. 
is definitely one of the most special things I've ever been a part of. So let me ask you one last question. What would you say, since you've been doing reissues alongside of new releases for about 13 years, would you say the audience for reissues has grown or do you think the audience has stayed pretty much the same? Like what, what's your take on that? I think it's grown tremendously. It's a point now where people who never would have gotten into reissues outside of maybe like, a, you know, buying some, you know, Beatles reissue or something are interested in, in these records, especially ones that, you know, that might be like a self-released record from 1982 or something that is, you know, a bit off the radar or was for, you know, 30 plus years. So it's changed a lot. I mean, you know, you see now, you know, places like, Pitchfork or even NPR, all these more mainstream publications and media outlets that are covering reissues in a, a larger way than they ever used to. So I think it's great. You know, it's, it's, I mean, that's something we continue to struggle with. As I was mentioning earlier, it's just kind of giving this music context in 2015 or whenever we're reaching it of why is this important? Why should someone care? And for us, it's always been more than just, you know, the collector in the basement who were one of those people too. But, you know, how do we get our, my mom is, you know, 73 into something or, you know, my you know, niece or nephew or, you know, 10 years old to let them know, like, why they should care. And, you know, and it, it, it a lot of times it reaches those people and it's great when that happens. And, you know, music was made to be shared, not for just, you know, a few select people to enjoy. Exactly. And on that note, Matt Sullivan runs the independent record label Light in the Attic. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Cause I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Silver magic ships you carry, jumpers, coke, sweet Mary Jane. That was Sugar Man by Rodriguez. We're excited to announce that this podcast is a member of Jabberjaw Media. Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. Recently, Jabberjaw added five new podcasts to the network, including three new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-focused podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast from New York. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows which have been a part of the network since its inception. Head over to jabberjawmedia.com for more information on all the shows. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, Eggs Over Easy, Rodriguez, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.
This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.